Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, Literally Heather. I haven't discussed COVID news in quite a while, but this one is something. According to a study published by JAMA, or JAMA is what I call it, Network Open, a COVID-19 infection increases the risk of developing diabetes. This confirms the previous research and underscores the long-term health risks that the virus poses as the world steadily adapts to living with COVID. Some of the key takeaways from this study include uh, the study based on health records from nearly 24,000 adults with at least one documented COVID-19 infection and were treated within the Cedars-Sinai Health System in Los Angeles between 2020 and 2022, found higher rates of new onset diabetes in the 90 days after a COVID infection. Wait for it. The odds of being diagnosed with new onset diabetes were 58% greater after infection than before. 58%. The finding is consistent with a growing body of research showing that patients who contract COVID are at an increased risk of being diagnosed with a range of metabolic and cardiovascular problems in the months after infection. It also suggests this increased risk has persisted with Omicron. The coronavirus variant that has been dominant in the United States and large parts of the world for more than a year. The findings also suggest vaccination can help protect against the risk of diabetes after infection, the researcher said. As the risk of diabetes appeared to be lower in patients who were vaccinated at the time of infection, Conveniently, the firm data supporting that was not included, just the assessment itself. Further research will be needed to confirm the theory, cautioned Alan Kwan, a cardiovascular physician in the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai, and the study's lead author, adding that the researchers are still steadfast in the belief that vaccination is an important tool in protecting against COVID. Susan Chang, a professor of cardiology and senior author of the study, said the team's findings both broaden medicine's understanding of the disease and unearths new questions. Though it is not certain, Chang said the data suggests a COVID infection could be acting as a disease accelerator in some settings, amplifying risk for a diagnosis that individuals may have otherwise received later in life. A person with pre-existing risk for diabetes might, for example, be more likely to develop the disease by age 45 or 55 after the infection rather than by 65. This is a casual reminder here that you paid for this. You were robbed by your government to pay for the research in a foreign country that irresponsibly unleashed this virus on the world. And additional reminder that they're still spending your money In the Wuhan laboratory, they're still working on gain-of-function research and CRISPR technology. One 
103 million. That's how many confirmed COVID cases have been reported in the United States since the start of the pandemic. This number is not neatly mapped to the number of people who have actually been infected. Many of these are repeat infections. Many cases are missed through the lack of testing or use of at-home rapid tests and a large number of asymptomatic infections. But it does give a rough sense of the scale for even a small risk increase for some conditions. I cannot stress enough my disdain for the fact that this was not only bought and paid for by our own government, but no one is being held accountable for it. Anthony Fauci was permitted to quietly step down from his perch as the highest paid governmental employee in the country, pocketing his millions and riding off into the sunset. Speaking of crappy people riding off into the sunset, did you all hear that YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, 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 I don't know how to say her last name and I really don't care. She's stepping away from her position. She released a statement yesterday that said, Today, after nearly 25 years here, I've decided to step back from my role as the head of YouTube and start a new chapter focused on my family, health, and personal projects that I'm passionate about. Sadly, she's being replaced by Neil Mohan, who, as the top executive, we're just replacing woke with woke. Any hope that one might have had (laughs) that the stifling censorship that occurs on the platform would be removed will need to go ahead and give up that hope. A native of Santa Clara, California, Wajiki is widely recognized for renting her garage to Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin in the company's early days. Normally, I try to offer some grace in these situations, but I have none. Good riddance, and I hope that Elon strikes while the iron is hot during YouTube's leadership transition and brings back a revamped version of Periscope and Vine and obliterates their stranglehold on the video market. For only the second time in four decades, the Pentagon's top China official is to visit Taiwan in the coming days a rare trip to the island by a senior U.S. defense policymaker that comes as relations between Washington and Beijing are mired in crisis over the suspected Chinese spy balloon that we shot down two weeks ago. Michael Chase, who's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China, will go to Taiwan in the coming days, according to four people familiar with his trip. He is currently in Mongolia for discussions with the country's military, Chase would be the first senior defense official to visit Taiwan since Hano Klink, Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asia, went in 2019. At the time, he was the most senior Pentagon official to visit the island in four decades. China says the balloon was a civilian craft doing meteorological research, but the United States insists that it was being used to conduct surveillance over sensitive military sites, including nuclear intercontinental ballistic missile silos in Montana. Joe Biden said on Thursday that he plans to talk to his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to, quote, get to the bottom of the balloon incident, which has sparked calls in Congress for the United States to take an even tougher line on Beijing. The Pentagon declined to comment on the trip to Taiwan, but it stressed that the United States support 
for and defense relationship with Taiwan remains aligned against the current threat posed by the People's Republic of China. The planned visit comes at a sensitive moment in relations between Washington and Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was trying to meet Wang Yi, the top Chinese foreign policy official at the Munich Security Conference this weekend. But two people familiar with the talk said Wang had not agreed to such a meeting. The State Department declined to comment. Three weeks ago, Blinken canceled a planned trip to China at short notice because of the balloon incident. Um, he had been scheduled to meet with Xi. Tensions between Washington and Beijing also remain high over Taiwan. A top American Air Force general recently said that he believes the U.S. and China will likely go to war over Taiwan in 2025. The Pentagon moved quickly to say that his comments did not reflect the official view. (laughs) Beijing opposes visits to Taipei by U.S. officials or lawmakers. Beijing argues that visits to Taiwan, over which it claims sovereignty, dilute Washington's one-China policy. Under the policy, which has been in place since the U.S. and China established relations in 1979, Washington recognizes Beijing as the sole government of China and acknowledges, without endorsing, the Chinese view that Taiwan is part of China. The Biden administration insists U.S. policy towards Taiwan hasn't changed. But the president has, on four occasions, said that the U.S. military would intervene if China attacked Taiwan. His remarks appeared to shift the long-standing U.S. policy of, quote, strategic ambiguity, under which Washington refuses to say if it would intervene in a conflict. It was designed to make Taiwan less likely to declare independence, which would almost certainly trigger a Chinese attack, while making Beijing think twice about any military action against the country. My friend Alex, who had an extensive career in the Pentagon and Department of Defense, said it best. This is a direct message to Beijing. Because of China's sensitivity about visits to Taiwan, the Department of Defense and other executive department agencies have unofficial bans in place on senior officials visiting the island. This is meant to send a message. It may not seem like a big deal, but it is. More trouble in paradise, I'm afraid, because the military aid destined for Ukraine could be in jeopardy. With U.S. support increasingly being seen as finite by some lawmakers, on Tuesday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin reaffirmed the United States' commitment to Ukraine. Speaking at the Ukraine Defense Contact Group meeting in Brussels, Austin said the U.S. and Kyiv's allies continue to work together to provide Ukraine with a full combat credible capability, not just equipment. It had been reported the previous day that the Biden administration is gearing up to announce another aid package destined for Ukraine. According to the Washington Post, another windfall of large military assistance is expected to be unveiled within the next week. Insane, considering I just told you guys about our ammunition shortages Wednesday and that anything requested today would take two and a half years to be delivered. But 
we're totally going to get those bicycle manufacturers to start working on the war chest any day now. Just wait. We will continue to try and press upon them, meaning the Ukraine leaders, that we can't do anything and everything forever, one senior administration official told the paper. But the Institute for the Study of War think tank noted that U.S. officials have privately signaled to Ukraine that Western security aid to Ukraine is finite. Yet, Austin described Kyiv as being at a critical juncture in the war effort with the anniversary of the invasion fast approaching. Ukraine has urgent requirements to help it meet its crucial moment in the course of war, he said on Tuesday. Speaking in his evening address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said speed is of the essence, including in carrying out decisions and shipping supplies. At the moment, bipartisan support for the U.S. financially backing Ukraine remains fairly robust, according to Rob Singh, who is a professor of politics at Birkbeck University of London. Small note here, a professor of politics in London really shouldn't be commenting on support for Ukraine from the United States. My guess is that whatever dwindling of support that's taking place on Capitol Hill is a thousandfold in the general public, considering how out of touch with reality they are. Naturally, as a result, lawmakers are also likely to continue with their approval for Ukraine support packages if an anticipated Russian offensive inflicts more death and destruction. There's a growth in how many Republicans believe the United States is giving Ukraine too much help, though. Many Republican congressmen still back sending aid, but a small but important group of populist nationalists are much more skeptical. Earlier this month, Florida Representative Matt Gates put forward a Ukraine fatigue resolution in which he called for an end to the military and financial aid being sent to Ukraine, as well as a peace agreement. Joe Biden must have forgotten his prediction from March of 2022, suggesting that arming Ukraine with military equipment will escalate the conflict to World War III, Matt Gates said. Several high-profile GOP voices, including Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, backed the resolution. This type of voice could make it increasingly difficult for strong aid measures to get through to the House of Representatives now, compared with when Democrats held both the House and Senate, Singh said. All I can say is good. At least someone is advocating for the American people. Whether you like any of those three people or not, the actions they have taken in recent months to attempt to limit The federal overreach constantly encroaching on the rights of everyday Americans is notable and worthy of recognition. Alas, they are outnumbered, and this is still the United States of Ukraine, especially when you have Mitch McConnell parading around on news shows to say the following after we've given them $29 billion in defense so far in a year. Quote, Defeating the Russians in Ukraine is the single most important event going on in the world right now. Bro, you're from Kentucky. You're right next to Ohio. There is a massive Chernobyl-like event going on in that state right now, and you're talking about how important Ukraine is. Whoa. Anyway, he said... 
it will save us an enormous amount of money down the road if the Ukrainians can succeed. They're not asking for any of our personnel, really. Then why do we have personnel over there? They're asking us for financial help. The Europeans are stepping up. They've done an awful lot that seems to not be recognized. For example, handling enormous numbers of refugees. In terms of the cost of it, it's only about 0.02% of our GDP. We're also monitoring very carefully the money that's being spent. This should be a bipartisan support of this. My biggest criticism of the president is that he didn't do enough soon enough. Had he moved more rapidly, we might have been able to help the Ukrainians have even more success than they've already had. But it seems like these weapon systems tend to get there a little too late on every occasion. I'm sorry the public opinion is sliding, but I want to assure the American people this is enormously important. We need to stay together on a bipartisan basis in our country and defend the people who are bravely fighting for freedom and democracy in Ukraine. While he wears his new signature blue and yellow tie. The contenders for the 2024 election are beginning to make their moves, but senior Democrats are rallying behind President Joe Biden for re-election in 2024. Not because he's their first choice, but out of concern, an alternative younger nominee will not be successful. Concerns over Biden's age have circulated since he entered office, something that the president has continuously brushed off numerous times. While not all Democrats are thrilled about having an 82-year-old run for a second term, they find the alternatives, such as Vice President Kamala Harris, securing the Democratic nomination or former President Donald Trump coming back to the White House much more alarming. Nobody wants to be the one to do something that would undermine the chances of a Democratic victory in 2024, Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota said. Yet, in quiet rooms, the conversation is just the opposite. We could be at a higher risk if this path is cleared. Democrats had a surprisingly good 2022 midterm election cycle despite losing control of the House. The highly touted red wave, which I really wish we'd stop saying that, failed to materialize. And though the GOP won back the lower chamber in Congress, its majority is far smaller than they anticipated. Democrats held on to the Senate after flipping and securing seats in battleground states. They took complete control after operating in an awkward 50-50 power-sharing agreement and relying on Harris to cast tie-breaking votes, which may end up happening again as uh, Fetterman has now admitted himself into the hospital for depression. However, private conversations regarding the 2024 election and the future of the Democratic Party have not subsided. It's fear, plain and simple, Phillips said, regarding the lack of Democrats calling for a new nominee and the reluctance of other candidates to step forward. People are focused on self-preservation and their aspirations, Phillips added that he believes Biden is a president of great competence and success. And if he were 15 to 20 years younger, it would be a no-brainer to nominate him. Well, he was 15 to 20 years younger 
in one of the three other times that he ran for president. But I mean, who's counting at this point? While Phillips has been open in his calls for supporting an alternative to Biden in 2024, most Democrats who agree with him are not letting their names get attached to those sentiments. Democrats who spoke to the paper spoke off the record and told stories about how the party has to get Biden off of the narcotic of the office, talked about how little the president will be up to campaigning, and attempted to persuade him that he was already victorious by talking to First Lady Jill Biden about how her husband has saved democracy. Fear over nominee selection is happening within the GOP as well, but for different reasons. Republicans do not seem to have a problem gathering other nominees, as speculation continues to circle around a slew of potential candidates, such as Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott. So far, Trump and his former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, are the only household names who have announced they are running for president in 2024. However, Senate Republicans have expressed concern that a large pool of GOP candidates could help Trump get the presidential nomination. Many senators are neutral at this point in the race, with few offering any criticism of Trump or stating that he is not their preferred candidate. Tensions between the Senate Republicans and Donald Trump have been high in recent years, over party performance of the GOP and the experienced majority losses in the Senate and House, as well as the White House. Democrats fear the same thing happening to them. Polls indicate that Democratic voters are less enthused about a second term for Biden and hope the party selects a new nominee. Speaking of senility, I watched Joe Biden's eight-minute presser yesterday where he addressed the Ohio train derailment, the southern border, the flying objects, the extreme levels of inflation the average American family is suffering, the Chinese spy balloon, rising gas prices, the nine dead whales, the price of eggs. Just kidding. He didn't address any of that, really. Uh, Joe Biden on Thursday said that the United States has no indication that the three objects shot down in North American airspace are tied to China's spy balloon program and are likely from private entities. Quote, we don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from any other country, Biden said in his first formal remarks on the objects shot from the sky last weekend over Canada and the United States. Quote, the intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Biden's White House speech to address the matter four days after the last known object was shot down comes after the president faced increasing pressure in Washington to be more transparent about the situation and his decision-making as commander-in-chief. Biden emphasized that there hasn't been evidence to suggest a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky, and although the most recent three objects appear to have been benign, Biden warned, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. The president said he has directed his team to devise, quote, sharper rules 
for how we will deal with these unidentified objects moving forward, distinguishing between those that are likely to pose safety and security risks that necessitate action and those that do not. Those classified parameters will be shared with Congress when they are finished. At the end of the presser, he took no questions, laughed with a deadpan stare at the press corps, and then walked off the stage behind a curtain as if he is not beholden to anyone to answer questions. Well, Joe, I hope you hear this because I have some questions for you. Number one, if they're not nefarious and they are research-related crafts, why didn't any company or entity come forward to the media or the government and say, hey, bro, you shot our stuff out of the sky? Number two, how did the first Sidewinder missile miss on the Michigan object? Was the object maneuvering? That would indicate that it's not a balloon for weather. Why did you shoot them down if they pose no threat? Number four, why would U.S. companies be using crafts in areas that pose risks to commercial air traffic? Wouldn't those companies have to communicate with the FAA? Wouldn't there be a record of this? If you knew about the China spy balloon from the moment that it left mainland China, why didn't you shoot it down in the Bering Strait or the Pacific Ocean? Why did you let it traverse all over our sensitive sites to the other side of the country? Don't worry, I won't hold my breath to get the answers to all of those questions. That is your Friday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I appreciate you guys joining me. Uh, Liberty Happy Hour is normally on Friday evenings. However, my daughter competes in a gymnastics competition tonight, so Liberty Happy Hour has been moved to Saturday evening if you would like to join us. I look forward to having you there. Same time, same place, uh, 10.15 Eastern Standard Time on Twitter Spaces. Otherwise, if you guys enjoyed this episode, please go out to iTunes or Spotify leave a rating or a review and let me know what your thoughts are. I would appreciate it greatly and it helps me with the algorithm. I love you guys. Take care. Have a great weekend and I'll see you on Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.